Welcome to the Intelligent Investing Podcast, where modern portfolio theory can suck it. A student of the school of Graham and Doddsville and a clergy member of the Church of Warren Buffett, here's your host, Eric Schlein. Hi, this is Eric Schlein. You're listening to the Intelligent Investing Podcast, and today we have on Jeremy Raper, and you are, you're calling in from London, right? That's right. Hey, Eric, how are you? I'm pretty good, man. How are you? Excellent. Thanks for having me. Yeah, right on, right on. So I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad you uh, come on the show. And, you know, I think we were connected on Twitter, and well, I don't remember whose idea it was for to come on the show. But anyway, it's great. It's great to have you on. I like your Twitter account a lot. Thanks, man. The world is a small place these days, so I expect yeah. there'll be more of these kinds of random connections that turn into hopefully interesting podcasts for and you going forward. Totally. You know, it's it's funny. I've had a, actually a few guests now where there's been some Twitter connection and, and one yeah. of us was like, let's just talk about it on the air. This is cool. So, awesome. so just tell tell the listeners a little bit about like what your background is exactly. I know you're, you're a private investor, but you do have quite an extensive and interesting investment background. Sure, sure. Yeah. So, yeah, as you said, I, I basically just manage my own money full time. Um, originally, I grew up in Sydney, Australia. Uh, so, I had a pretty typical middle class background. You know, went to high school, um, graduated high school 2002. Uh, so, I was 18. And at that point, I kind of left Australia and went to university in the United States. So, that was kind of pretty different. Not many people who grew up in Australia actually leave for college and go outside Australia. It's not really the done thing. So, it was a bit exceptional, um, but I wanted to do it. Uh, and so I went to study in the U.S. Uh, I studied history and also minded in Japanese. But before I even got to college, I, I was pretty interested in investing from a young age. So my grandpa was a big investor. He kind of taught me the basics. Um, and when I say the basics, I mean, do mean you know very much uh, kind of not Graham and Dodd deep value investing or you know even reading Warren Buffett's letters. <laughs> very much you know this is the stock market. This is what a company is. This is what a share of stock is. Um, why don't you go and start reading about companies, that kind of thing. So I started doing that very much in high school, but at a very basic, unsophisticated level. Um, and so, you know, the best thing that can happen when you're, you know, I guess getting started into the stock market, obviously you have to have an interest, but you know, I was lucky, right? So I was growing up during the, uh, the internet bubble and I, one of the two first companies I picked was an Australian, small Australian technology company that made chips for, uh, for, uh, not for credit cards, but for like uh, when you ride the subway in Hong Kong, they made the chip that went into that, uh, it went into like a smart card reading type uh, chip, right? Like, so, a, like a subway card? almost. Exactly, yeah, okay. exactly. So it was pretty novel in the late 1990s. And this company had a, they won some massive contract in Hong Kong and they followed that up with a few other wins. And so basically I bought this stock at two bucks, not knowing what I was doing. And uh, every time it doubled, I cashed out half. And I think I cashed out four or five times. Uh, and of course, it went uh, it went to zero eventually. But I didn't know what I was doing. But the fact that I was, you know, one of my first decent investments was a big winner, more through luck than skill. That kind of stoked my interest. So when I went to the U.S., I obviously, you know, had the bug by that point. And uh, even though I, I majored in history uh, and also did a language as a minor, I continued to try and uh, uh, continue my education as an investor. Such that by the time I graduated college. Uh, in 2008, I, I kind of knew I wanted to work in finance. I wanted to be an investor one day professionally. Um, the problem was it, it was 2008, right? So, um, you know, there, there weren't many jobs to be had on Wall Street. Let's put it that way. 
But by that time, I spoke Japanese, um, having you know developed that skill uh, during my college years. And what what so, what had you pick Japanese? That's like interesting. That was <laughs> that was also kind of random, actually. So. Because in Australia, when you graduate high school, you graduate at the end of the year, right? So that's, that's when summer is, right? So you graduate in December. Uh, and then because I was going to uni, university in, in the US, I had nine months or 10 months off, essentially, right? Till next fall. So I had to do something. So I could have gone on a trip around the world. I could have done a you know, gap semester in England, which is what, what a lot of other kids did. But for whatever reason, I'd started studying Japanese very late in high school, and my dad kind of just thought it would be good for me, and I, I was interested in it. So I went and lived in Japan for six months uh, with a host family, kind of like a, a Japanese language exchange, um, and, and learned Japanese. And so that kind of developed into a much deeper love for the language and also the country. Um, and so by the time I graduated college, having you know built on that education, I use that essentially to parlay my way into finance uh, with a job in Tokyo working for a large bulge bracket firm. Not given my finance experience, such as it was, it was still fairly meager, but, but because I spoke, you know, I spoke fluent Japanese, which was relatively rare, I guess, is relatively rare. So, so basically, I became a salesperson selling derivatives of various kinds, credit derivatives, equity derivatives, convertible bonds um, from Tokyo to hedge funds. Um, around the world uh, and kind of learning a bunch about a bunch of different asset classes, learning about investment banking, learning about sales and trading, um, and kind of continuing my journey. Um, so I guess, look, this is that was the first formative years of my career. And I, I guess it was really, really important for how I developed as an investor because, like, we'll talk more about my investment style, but but essentially everything that I do today and, and the way I view risk uh, and the way I try and generate excess returns is grounded in those first four to five years I spent in Japan. Because during that period of time, I noticed there's maybe two key lessons that kind of guided the rest of my career. And I think they're relevant probably to your listeners as well today, given the rest of the world increasingly looks more and more like Japan from a, from a monetary perspective, right? So the first thing is, you know, by 2008, which is when I began my, my career, um, you know, people think QE, so zero interest rate policy or, you know, quantitative easing or whatever you want to call it, people think that's a novel phenomenon, right? That, that it only happened in the US post the crisis, that it only happened in Europe in the last, you know, six or seven years. But what they don't realize is that QE is actually a Japanese invention, really, right? So the Bank of Japan cut rates to zero in 1992, or essentially zero, and has never looked back. So if you want to understand what chronically low cost of capital does to a, to a capital market, um, you go to Japan, because that's ground zero. And so the first thing I noticed when I was there was there is no culture of credit analysis. So I guess that begs the question, what is credit analysis? But essentially what it means is instead of thinking like an equity investor, right? So if I spend a dollar buying a share, the most I can lose is my dollar. But, you know, if the company grows, whatever, it could go up 10, 20, 50, 100 times, right? Right, right. So, so you know, that's the typical equity mindset, right? You have an open-ended call option on the company's growth, and therefore you're much more interested in growth than anything else. You care about blue sky. You care about the TAM. You care about, you care about, uh, you're an optimist, right? That, that's kind of natural if you, if you own stock. A creditor is completely different. The most the creditor can, can get back is his is his loan. If he lends money to a company, his upside is getting his money back. Maybe he gets a coupon along the way, maybe not. So his perspective, prima facie, is I don't want to say negative, but it's it's skeptical, it's cynical, it's uh, 
what's my security? Where am I in line? What are the assets backing my claim? Um, how much cash are you generating today? Not how much cash might you generate in five years? Um, you know, actually, creditors don't care about growth because growth often consumes capital. Most often, actually, unless it's some great service business um, or it's Amazon.com. <laughs> you know, growth generally requires capital investment, whether that being working capital or or whatever. So, so what I mean when I say there's no credit credit mindset, what I mean is that that skepticism, that thinking about my downside much more than my upside. Uh, and also the pure language of a credit analyst, right? So thinking about, you know, debt service coverage ratios, thinking about fixed charge coverage, thinking about debt to assets uh, in a conservative credit first way had completely disappeared from the market. Um, and, you know, I guess if you think about it, it's natural, right? So after 30 years of zero rates, the spread in, in credit cost terms, right, the spread charged to lend to a very good company, let's call it Toyota, right? So one of the best credits in the market was Toyota, the, the large car company. Sure. You know, they could borrow at essentially zero, right? Five basis points over JGBs and JGBs was zero, right? So essentially five basis points. Now, the spread to charge to the worst company in the market, which for many years was a company called Sharp, right? They, they make TVs and, you know, microwaves and white goods. But essentially, the consumer electronics company Sharp has been pretty distressed for the better part of a decade, right? Now, at the time, the spread being charged, you know, on sharp credit was 30, 35 basis points, right? So imagine, you know, putting it in a U.S. context, right? If I, if I said that, uh, what's a AAA rated U.S. corporation? Let's say, I don't know, Google's very high credit, right? If I, I, I lend to Google at five basis Coke, points, but I lend Johnson to PG, Johnson, right? Yeah, Johnson and Johnson at five basis points, but then I lend to PG&E, right? The, the bankrupt utility, let's call it. Yep. If I lend to them at 30 basis points, that's not much of a spectrum, is it? That'd be ridiculous. <laughs> exactly. So, so that makes sense that this kind of credit sense of thinking, this credit-based uh, analytical framework would disappear because the market is simply not paying attention. The, mar the market is not paying you to do that work. But the problem with that mindset that I realized is that every now and then it does matter because it doesn't matter that the banks are willing to lend at an irrational cost of debt for a couple of years because a lot of these busted companies, you know, they're still competing in globalized commodity markets, right? So, you know, going back to the sharp example, you know, banks are lending to them at 30, 40 basis points for two or three years, but they're still burning cash. They're still almost negative EBITDA. They're still competing against Chinese, uh, you know, Chinese money that set up new factories in China. Uh, and has basically destroyed their uh, their display business, right, and their television business through um, through lower cost uh, commoditized production that the Japanese labor and Japanese fabs just can't compete with, right? So the business cycle goes on. In other words, there's still winners, there's still losers. Doesn't matter if you get free capital, you, you just end up becoming a zombie. Um, and so the point is really one: you still need to do the work because at some point the banks will still turn off the tap. That was lesson one. And then lesson number two is, is a very important corollary, and it directly relates to, to kind of how I, I deploy risk today. And that is just because you think like a creditor doesn't mean you then apply those lessons in bonds, right? Doesn't mean you only play in fixed income. In fact, in, quantitative, in, in markets where you have structural QE or structural low interest rates, you actually want to apply the fruits of the, of the credit analysis in equities, 
right? Because invariably, when the banks do tap these kinds of companies on the shoulder and force them to recapitalize, there's so much excess liquidity in the system that it doesn't happen through bankruptcy, right? So, so bankruptcy is just is just a court-led process to recapitalize a company, turning debt into equity, right? Right. So what happens instead of having a court-led process is, invariably, the banks say to the company, you need to delever. Those companies turn around and issue a boatload of shoe shares, uh, diluting existing holders to the benefit of creditors. So you get the same recapitalization, debt for equity. It just happens in the equity market. Okay. So, you know, during that time, I was in Japan from 2008 to 2012, you know, as a salesperson, right? So I wasn't deploying risk, but almost, you know, this was not a this was not a sector-specific phenomenon, right? You saw this pattern happen over and over and over again, whether it be in the airline space, automotive, consumer electronics, integrated electronics, uh, industrials. It was almost a, a market-wide phenomenon that would develop over and over, mostly on the short side, but not exclusively. You did have a few bites of the cherry on the long side, um, where these companies would troubled companies would just get into a debt hole. It would spin for a couple of years. They'd end up violating a few covenants that no one were really looking at because no one really looked at, you know, covenants properly. Um, the banks would force them to delever. They would issue a huge ton of shares. The stocks would get destroyed, but the credit would be okay. So you didn't want to bet against the credit. You wanted to bet against the stocks. So that, that, that was kind of my formal education starting point and where I developed my, my investment philosophy, which is you know, what I call credit-based equity investing or thinking like a creditor, but applying it to stocks. Because I saw, you know, from my Japanese experience, one, you know, this kind of work is not being done in this market. And two, because of the the nature of the monetary policy, uh, I guess in Japan at that time, but, you know, developing in other markets post the crisis, I thought it would be quite likely that other other credit markets and equity markets would devolve to this kind of situation where, you know, credit markets are essentially not sending the right signal. The cost of credit is not being priced accurately. When we can we can talk about a few examples, or uh, when we when we get to one of the examples that I actually like on the short side. Now it's kind of a perfect example of this, right? Okay. It's a German company, mid cap, well covered, you know, terribly levered, terrible business, where the bonds traded, you know, one 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 and a half percent, just because the ECB is buying up every bond that's investment grade rated, and these bonds are double B minus, but they're the only thing left to buy with any yield on them, right? So that's kind of, in a nutshell, my education as an investor. I, I didn't give you the most recent <laughs> years of my career, but essentially I went from the sell side to the buy side uh, in various roles and, and then just started investing full time um, and may look to do something formally in the future in terms of a fund, but for now I'm just a full time investor using this methodology. Interesting. The When when you were in Japan, what it, what is real? What did real estate look like in Japan back then, or even now? So, okay, so real estate's gone straight up with QE, essentially. That's, um, that's what I would think, right? Would, especially with interest <laughs> rates so low, it's just like, why not borrow for thirty years and you know make the spread, right? A lot of people have done that. A lot of people have and continue to do that. Um, there. Yeah, I mean, I, I've never been a huge real estate investor, either directly or indirectly through, you know, through REITs or through real estate developers, just because I've always been attracted to the liquidity profile of investing in the stock market, right? So if I get something wrong, I can turn around, and get my money out immediately, right? right. Essentially, um, and look, a lot of these, a lot of these, because there are a lot of there are, right, are, there are and, well, there are a lot of Japanese companies. I think you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I think I've seen quite a few where you'd have just a ton of real estate on a, ba- on a balance sheet 
of, of, a, of a stock. Yeah. Yeah. So, so look, the original kind of, uh, what's the word for it? Impetus for that, for that phenomenon was the eighties bubble, right? So, you know, Japan had the world's biggest stock market bubble in the eighties. Everyone's probably heard the old, uh, the old, uh, anecdote that, um, the land under the Imperial palace in 1989 was worth more than the entire state of California. Right. So no one has ever seen a real estate bubble like the Japanese stock and real estate bubble of the late eight 1980s. But that was essentially the beginnings of, of what you're describing. Right. So a lot of companies owned some land. That land took off in value. They borrow against the increased value of the land. They use that borrowed money to buy more land. They pyramid on up and up and up. And obviously that would provide fuel for the market. You know, this happened for a decade, then it all blew up in 1990, essentially. And so then in Japan, they spent the next, you know, 10, 15, at least the next 10 years trying to repair the financial system because all the real estate collapsed, which meant all the banks collapsed. They merged, you know, from eight or nine big banks to three or four big banks. Half the regional banks went bust. A lot of the securities companies went bust. Um, and, and then there were a few companies, you know, some of the better credits still had land on the books that got marked down a lot, but, you know, then they, they kept it and, and then it started going up again uh, in, say, the late, in, say, from, say, 2010, let's say, um, why, once QQE why do these, really kicked off. Why, why do these companies keep land that they're not really using? It seems like a very Japanese thing. That's, that's the uh, $64,000 question. Why do, why do any of these Japanese companies own half the things they own that they, <laughs> they don't really need? So is there a cultural thing there that, um, there's, look, there's, there's definitely an element where, you know, the Japanese public company is a bit like an empire, right? So, you know, there's an old, there's an old, uh, store about Japanese companies that every second Japanese company owns a golf course, right? <laughs> So probably because the chairman likes to play golf, right? Okay. Um, but I mean, culturally, you know, Japan is an interesting place because we think of it like a, a capitalist democracy. It's definitely a democracy, but they're not really that capitalist, right? So they talk about stakeholders. And when they talk about stakeholders, they mean first and foremost, employees of the company. Then they mean society at large. Then they mean maybe shareholders, number three, and a distant number three. The vast majority of Japanese companies don't exist to serve shareholders in the way we're used to in the West. They basically are there to to support the, the, the corporate unit, which is viewed as a second family. And the reason for that is lifetime employment was a big part of the post-war uh, appeal to Japanese, right? We, you will work really hard uh, for probably meager wages, but you'll be treated like a family member at this company. You'll never be fired. Um, you'll have a real uh, emotional stake in the well-being of the company. That kind of promise was never made to investors, right? So, so I mean, look, that's a that's a huge cultural holdover. It's changing slowly, but a lot of the, the strange behaviors you see from Japanese companies, right? So, there's this Japanese company, for example, right, called DIC Corp. Okay. <laughs> they make print. They make printing ink. By the way, I have no position in this company. They make printing inks. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a couple other businesses. It's not a small company. It's a few billion market cap. Um, but they also have one of the largest collections of modern art in the world that the, the value of their modern art collection is probably worth three times the market cap, that's, that's so but bizarre. they don't even disclose, they don't even disclose what they own really. It's basically a private museum, uh, in a random part of Tokyo, uh, because the, the founder of this company was really interested in art. Uh, and <laughs> he built up his collection starting in the sixties and seventies, you know, there's Basquiat's in it. There's. There's Coons, is a Jeff Coons pieces in. I mean, there's multiple hundred hundred pieces of work 
if you even tried to market to market the stock would pro- and, and, and put out you know uh, some kind of uh, assessment of it in an equity research report the stock probably go up might might double or something but, but there'll never be any you know, activism there right ex- exactly exactly that's the thing so you know the 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 it's not a matter of, and we can we can talk about this, I guess, when I come to my investment philosophy. But it's not just a matter of finding cheap stuff, right? Japan is the land of cheap stocks. Right. The last bastion of net nets is Japan. It's not good enough to be cheap. You also have to be able to get the value out, and that's why I think thinking like a creditor is actually really valuable. Because as most good creditors will know, part of the security is getting repaid. So part of the security of having credit claim is getting that carry, right? Getting that ten percent coupon, or getting that cash flow sweep. In other words, you know, for distressed companies, creditors will often only provide credit when they get a piece of the excess cash flow generated by the business. So if you think in those terms, doesn't matter how cheap it is, if it's just accumulating on the balance sheet and if you and you have no way to access that cheapness, you always have to find a way to try to catalyze the cheapness and get it into your pocket. Right. Um, do you do yeah. you do you look at United States stocks as well? Oh yeah, yeah absolutely, okay. absolutely. So I mean, look, I look at developed market securities worldwide. Essentially, I focus on three main markets, Japan, North America, so, you know, US and Canada, sure. uh, and then Western Europe. Don't really do much in Australia, don't really do much in Hong Kong. Um, any any, reason, any reason for that? or <laughs> Australia, okay. So, Australia is an infuriating stock market. It's the world's most expensive stock market if you look at anything of quality and anything of size. Uh, and the reason for that is... There's just too much money there, right? The superannuation scheme is one of the world's largest relative to the relative to you know per capita, um, because they started it very early and they force you know a very high percentage of your annual wage has to go into superannuation. It's like 12, 13 percent, something like that. Uh, and they started it in the 50s or the 60s. So there's a huge amount of money I'm that sorry, essentially what, is capped. Su- superannuation. What, what does that mean? Oh, sorry, sorry. So like a 401k equivalent. Ah, uh, okay, so got it. 401k equivalent started very early relative to other countries and was mandatory and is mandatory. So there's a huge amount of capital that is almost all going into the Aussie stock market. So anything that's in an, in the main benchmark index, anything that's, you know, has any kind of profile and liquidity tends to be very expensive on a global scale. At the other end of the spectrum, there's a ton of bombed out mining stocks that are actually really, really cheap. Um, but then you have liquidity issues, right? Um, so Australia is a bit of a look. I've, I've invested in Australia before. You know, it's fine. Um, it's just for my particular style, I found it a little bit more tricky place to invest, um, as opposed to Japan, where even at the very, very small end of the scale, liquidity is not a problem, right? Right. So you know, one of my key long ideas this year has been a company called Shinoken. Okay. The ticker is eight nine zero nine. It's a real estate developer in Japan. Um, and, uh, when I started investing, the market cap was, you know, $250 million, but it still traded five, $6 million a day. Right now the market caps up to call it, uh, 450 million. So it's, it's gone up quite a bit uh, and it's trading, you know, seven, eight, nine million million a day. Right. So if I took a $250 million company in Australia, it might trade hundred thousand dollars a day. Right. Wow. It's just much more difficult. Yeah. Interesting. So with a personal account, you could potentially make a lot of money in Australia. Yeah, at the, I mean, look, there's there's opportunities everywhere, right? I sure. guess it's just, you know, I, I look, and I, I'm not I'm not winging around hundreds of millions of dollars here. So clearly, if there's something interesting in Australia, I'll definitely look at it. But what do you? But yeah, do I mean, Japan do, Japan is the most liquid market outside the U.S. by far. What is your process for 
uh, finding either, say, super tiny Australian companies or companies in Japan? Sure. So, so look, I mean, there's, there's three key ways I generate ideas. Um, the first and by far the most important is what I call cumulative, right? So new ideas grow out of old ideas. New ideas grow out of past learnings, past things I've looked at. So that could either be, you know, a different company in the same sector. So I looked at, uh, I looked at Japan Airlines and then I started looking at ANA, another airline, right? Or it could be, uh, you know, a different geography but the same sector. So I looked at JFE Steel or Nippon Steel, two big Japanese steel companies. Then I started looking at ArcelorMittal, you know, Europe's largest steel company, or actually the largest steel company in the world. Or I started looking at US Steel or AK Steel, right? So, you know, if it's a global commodity business, as steel obviously is, looking at a Japanese or European or US Steel company, they're all much of a muchness. Similarly, if I've looked at an airline, then when I start looking at, uh, you know, aircraft leasing, it's an adjacent sector, so I already have a, you know, some kind of bedrock of knowledge I can build upon. So at any given time, I'd say ideas in my book are probably 70 or 80% cumulative based. It's based on past learnings and areas where I've had success or failure, but at least past learnings. Then the second bucket of ideas or ways to generate is, is through what I call idiosyncratic. So this is essentially everything that doesn't fit into a neat systematic kind of idea generation schematic, right? So, you know, I'm a member of Value Investors Club. I've met a lot of really smart people on that site. Um, obviously, I met you through Twitter. That's another great resource. Uh, I try to read newspapers, essentially, you know, three or four daily newspapers around the world, um, not just, you know, finances, but general topical newspapers as well. I try to write, read uh, blogs, investment blogs. I try to read in, industry uh, newsletters like shipping newsletters or mining newsletters, these kind of things. Anything that kind of is interesting and maybe peripherally related to, to, to what I'm looking at. Um, and look, this is, this is very much kind of turning over tons of rocks. And then maybe picking up one out of 10, one out of 15 for further work, right? So kind of an inch an inch deep but a mile wide type approach to try and cover, cover a fair amount of ground. That's the idiosyncratic approach, everything that's not systematic. And then the third bucket is clearly systematic. So this is essentially, you know, proprietary screening where I will screen my three main markets, Japan, North America, Western Europe, for a size. In other words, you know, removing the ones that I think are liquidity constrained. Then I'll remove the sectors that I don't think I have any business investing in. So as you probably gathered from my kind of credit-based approach, it's it's very much a balance sheet-driven approach, right? It's very much a tangible, well, you know, a tangible asset and liability-driven approach. So if the business is like uh, luxury goods, for example, if it's uh, Montclair or LVMH, you know, the the real value of the business is in no way reflected by the tangible numbers on the balance sheet, right? Because the, the, the intangible component of the business's value is so high. So I could never really invest one way or another in, in, in branded, highly branded goods, luxury goods, let's say. For a similar reason, I could never really invest in biotech or pharma, right? Is, unless, you're a, unless you're a doctor or a specialist, you know, you're never going to see on the balance sheet, you know, the value of this drug is, is $10 billion, right? But it could be. So, so no pharma, no biotech, no healthcare, probably very little software, maybe some highly commodity software, but, but generally no software um, and no luxury goods. So basically everything else is very balance sheet driven approach works, you know, industrials, cap goods, uh, resources, commodities, um, consumer cyclicals, obviously, uh, and then consumer discretionary as long as it's not too heavily branded. You know, those sectors are kind of my happy hunting ground. 
So I put those through the blender and then I then, after all that, I screen for some very specific, I want to say cash flow based uh, metrics, but they're, they're more like customized cash, cash flow based metrics, right? So one of the things I try to do is I really try to look at what sustainable free cash flow is. So a lot of people talk about free cash flow as being, you know, the, the foundation of a business's value and I subscribe to that. But the problem is, you know, you have to, you have to really tinker with free cash flow, right? Because if you look at free cash flow in, you know, year five of the investment cycle for a mine, it might look really bad, but in year so six, you're, it you're, might look really you're good, basically right? normalizing free cash flow. Yeah. Normalizing. Yeah. I guess normalizing is one way to put it. I guess <laughs> I think maybe a slightly more sophisticated what I try to do. Um, so for example, instead of just normalizing for say growth versus maintenance capex, right, which, which is a pretty standard normalization. Right. I'll also try to normalize for where I think we are in the cycle, right? Okay. So there'll be some price normalization. If it's a commodity business, I'll, I'll make some normalization assumptions, not just on the CapEx line, but also on like the, the ASP line, let's say. Mm-hmm. Then I do a few other things that I think are a little bit different. So one of the things I do is I consider working capital a structural cash drag or a structural cash addition. What I mean by that is going back to my first point, you know, if this is a business trying to grow, then it's going to consume cash. So I don't want to give them the benefit of that growth. I want to be punitive, right? So if they're trying to grow, I will subtract the capital required to grow from my calculation of sustainable free cash flow. And the reason I'll do that is I'll assume that they're in growth mode, therefore they won't be giving that cash back to shareholders anytime soon. Um, And that's just not my, frankly, that's just not my cup of tea, right? That's not what I kind of look for. So I'll deduct, say, structural working capital drag, or I'll add back structural working capital addition, you know, if it's a if it's a service business where they pay their suppliers in 90 days but collect from consumers you know, immediately and or they don't have to carry inventories, I'll give them the benefit of that on the other side as well. And then the third thing I do to adjust for my definition of sustainable free cash is I consider a structural advantage the difference between cash tax and statutory tax. So this, I think, is quite uh, important in some industries in particular, right? So if you look at, say, aircraft leasing, which is probably my favorite space on a long-term basis, right? So one of the benefits of, say, aircraft leasing that people don't really appreciate is, let's take a company like Airlease, right? So it's, you know, 5 billion market cap, trades at 10 times gap earnings or slightly, maybe slightly less than that. It's it's growing pretty rapidly. Uh, they've never really lost money. They have a great management team, basically run by the guy who invented the entire sector, Um and they report, so they report under U.S. GAAP, right? So they're reporting at a U.S. GAAP stat tax rate of, you know, around 25%, let's say. But none of the planes are actually domiciled in the U.S., right? All, all the planes are domiciled in Ireland or whatever. So what they're doing is actually GAAP, GAAP EPS, statist, not statistically, but actually overstates the amount of cash tax structurally. Because as long as the planes are domiciled outside the U.S. and as long as the tax laws don't change... Again, those are assumptions, but for our working purposes, let's leave them as as is. Then you know you're getting the difference between stat tax rate and actual tax rate as a deferred tax liability that just builds up on the balance sheet as a liability every year over and over and over. So what what do you call something that is a long term liability? That's actually free financing, basically, right? So right. the actual earnings power of the underlying business is chronically understated by the gap PL, and you need to adjust for that. So I'll make all those three adjustments. I'll adjust for growth versus maintenance capex. I'll adjust for where we are in the cycle. I'll adjust for structural working capital drag or addition, and then I'll also adjust for what I think 
uh, is a sustainable stat tax versus cash tax differential um, to try and get some kind of sustainable free cash flow number. Uh, and then I'll screen for that and a few other metrics around there. Um, and then the goal is obviously on the long side to pay a very low multiple of that number. So I'll, I'll never buy something over 10 times that number. Just a hard and fast rule I have. Um, and then on the short side, obviously, if that number is sustainably negative or you know a very, very high multiple of that number, you know, plus a busted balance sheet, plus a credit catalyst, which we can talk about, then it, it could be a very interesting short. And what, and what are you using the screen? So, look, Bloomberg, Bloomberg is, a, is a pretty useful tool, right? So EQS is the function you can do an equity screen on. Okay. So essentially, you can set that screen up pretty quickly and just run that, say, once every couple of weeks. You know, it doesn't have to be on a daily basis, right? Things don't tend to move that much. So I basically, I use EQS as my go-to. Got it. Got it. Cool. Um, also, speaking of uh, airline uh, leasing companies, have you ever heard of AirCap? <laughs> AirCap is my largest long. Oh, it <laughs> I is. love AirCap. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've yeah, I've been a long time bull on AirCap. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's a very high quality company. They look, they haven't lost money. As a public company, they've never lost money. They didn't lose money in 08, 09. The stock got obliterated because of financing conditions, obviously. But I mean, that's that's the interesting thing about AirCap, right? It it trades as if it is. I don't want to say as if it's an airline, but it trades with the stink of an airline. It when trades like it's distressed, yeah. Exactly. When in actual fact, I mean, I guess the right way to think about it is most people will comp it to other asset utilization businesses, right? So other leasing businesses like equipment leasing or whatever, or ship leasing. Sure. But the thing they don't understand is that airlines is essentially an oligopoly. It's a two-player market for passenger fixed-wing passenger aircraft. There is only two players. So the supply and demand for fixed-wing passenger aircraft has been far better managed than any of these other equipment leasing businesses or ship leasing businesses for a generation because it's in the OEM's best interest, right? It's not in Boeing or Airbus's interest to flood the world with planes and watch the value of those planes decline, you know, because they have a 10-year black backlog they're trying to sell at increasing rates, you know, that at least keep up with inflation. So that provides the people who then buy that equipment at an initial discount, which obviously Aircap does, uh, and then lease it out on long-term fixed contracts, that provides them with a huge amount of security because in a, in a sense, they're on the same side as the OEMs, right? Whereas they're not really on the same side. If you if you buy ships right from a shipyard and then you and then you lease those out and the shipping rates go way up, you're not on the same side as the shipyard. The shipyard wants to pump out more ships. Um, so it's it's actually quite a unique kind of uh, a financing business um, and one that look it hasn't really gotten credit for a very long time. But I don't think you need that to make money even from here. It's had a it's had a pretty decent year, but you know these these names are dropping like flies. Right, the private market is picking up uh, businesses of these these kinds of businesses uh, left, right, and center. And so, look, I, I fully expect Aircap to be taken out at some point by a large financial institution with a structurally low cost of capital, much like um, much like Aircastle got taken out by a Japanese uh, bank and trading house consortium. It would not surprise me to see Aircap taken out in three or four years by some, you know, Japanese insurance company or Japanese bank consortium. Um, having once, once, uh, once Angus, the CEO, Angus Kelly, once he's achieved his midterm growth targets, when he's happy to sell the business, I, I'm pretty sure he he gets it, uh, and that's probably where the business is going to go. Where do you, and how do you compare Aircap to the other business you uh, just brought up before? You mean how do I how do I 
how do I look at it as a as a long on my on my metrics? Yeah, because you, you said a lot of nice things about that other company. I, I forget what what the name was now. Uh, was it Shinaken or was it oh, oh, Airlease? Yeah, Airlease yeah, yeah, is the yeah, other yeah, one. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I, I use Airlease because that's a pretty clean example to to demonstrate the um, the tax, the cash tax versus stat tax anomaly, because they are you know U.S. listed, U.S. GAAP reporter, um, but but obviously the, the planes are are domiciled offshore. Um, actually, Aircap's reported tax rates are much closer to their to the actual cash tax because they are you know Netherlands domiciled and Ireland based. So there isn't as much of a discrepancy there that I need to adjust for. Look, those two companies are not too dissimilar. Um, they both kind of have their roots in the beginnings of the aircraft leasing business. Um, the main difference is Aircap is completely agnostic to growth. So going back to what I said, I really don't care about growth. In fact, I prioritize no growth if I'm getting the capital back. So that's exactly Because they how buy the back a lot of stock, Angus. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they, they've made it extremely clear over and over and over again, they do not care to grow the fleet. In fact, the fleet in absolute terms has not grown in three and a half years. Didn't they because, buy back like, yeah. it was like 30, 40% of their, their shares outstanding yeah. a few years ago? Yeah, in the last, exactly. In the last five years, they've retired 38, 39% of shares yeah. at the time um, through buybacks, which puts I, them in the top. I'll tell you, I, I, I've listened to a lot of their conference calls. He, the C is a really, really sharp guy. Yeah, Angus. Angus is, you know, true outsider CEO. Um, if he left, it would be devastating. Um, a brilliant CEO, and yeah, they've they've been very clear about their capital allocation priorities. So, so they can sell, you know, a 10, 11 year old fixed wing plane at, you know, eight percent above their carrying value for the plane, but obviously they finance it, right? So and then they buy the back, and they buy back below book value, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So there's a huge job, right? So as long as that exists, they'll continue to do it, even if it means they don't grow. They're happy to sell their planes down. And look, they sell, call it one to two billion net book value of planes every year. They have a 35 billion asset uh, fleet. Um, so call it five to seven percent of the book turns over every year, and with that five to seven percent, they retire, you know, eight nine percent of the stock. Um, essentially, is the way to do it. So every year, owning eight percent more of the company maybe 9% depending on the year. Um, and uh, and actually also at the same time, the balance sheet is getting improved because they've repositioned the fleet from being quite an old fleet, which it was when they acquired ILFC's business in uh, 2014, um, to a much younger business with a much uh, better credit profile. In other words, they've locked in the leases from their customers for 7.2 years on average, whereas five years ago it was, uh, I think it was under five years. It was It was a much shorter period of time. Right. Interesting. Um, interesting. So what what are your, um, I know you said you, you short as well, right? Yeah. I Look, I mean, shorting is, is very much bread and butter to me. I mean, I look, I can't recommend it to everyone because it's a very different risk profile clearly. But look, I'm not one of those guys who wakes up in the morning and thinks the stock market is going to go up every day. Um, in fact, <laughs> the fact that it has gone up every day for, I don't know, <laughs> at least the last year or a couple of years, and we've had a bull market for 11 years, it caused me a lot of angst because I'm the kind of guy who worries that one day the whole market is going to open down 30% just for whatever reason, right? You know, QE ends or God forbid there's some other kind of terrorist attack. Or, you know, I don't hope it doesn't happen, but, you know, I just I just can't go to bed at night being, you know, 70, 80, 90% long or even 50% long. I really would not be able to sleep. Oh, I, I, uh, it's not I my personality. I, I hear you. What do you, what do you think <laughs> so, though? Um, yeah. I mean, just from, 
from your experience in Japan, and now we have low interest rates in the United States. Do you see a lot of parallels? I mean, are there a lot of other things you learned in Japan that you apply to looking at U.S. markets? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Look, there's many differences, but there's also many similarities, right? So essentially what's happened in Japan over the last uh, – look, the reason interest rates are zero in Japan now is because they haven't been able to grow their way out of stagnation, right? So demand has been – there was so much excess demand pulled forward by the bubble – uh, that there's just a huge amount of slack in the system and no amount of stimulus has been able to shake the economy, you know, in a fundamental way. There have been periods of, you know, 18 to 24-month periods of growth, but in a very fundamental way, there's been no escape velocity for that economy, right? And part of that's demographic, let's be honest. So, so look, if, if I was to comp Japan to the US, right, I would say on the monetary side, it's looking increasingly like Japan. However, on the demographic side, it's, it's a completely different. So I don't want to push the, the comparison too far, right. but because of the extent of low interest rates and how they've devolved globally, you know, honestly, actually, I think Europe is in a much, much worse position uh, than the US, um, and it's a much better comp to Japan. So, so Europe is definitely worth making that direct comp. Um, but anyway, going back to the US, uh, I don't want to stretch the comparison too far, but from a monetary perspective, a lot of those Japanese mistakes have been made and are being made in the US. Um, just because we've had easy money for so long. Um, and, and, you know, there is this assumption in the market, uh, particularly since Trump's come in and more recently, there is this kind of, you know, buy the dip no matter what kind of mentality that, that uh, the U.S. president, the U.S. leaders have kind of encouraged. And I guess Powell is obviously encouraged by backflipping at the end of last year on the plan to tighten, right, and kind of completely capitulating. So there is this mentality, I think, pervading the market that, you know, stocks will just not be allowed to go down, which, you know, the last time that happened was 2007. So, and, and by the way, I'm not massively bearish and I'm not, you know, net 50% short or anything like that. But right. it's the reason why I run my book, say, 20% net long uh, and beta adjusted close-ish to flat because there will be a reckoning, right, as uh, it's as clear as mud. Your trees don't grow to the sky, and you have stock market corrections. That's been the case since stock markets were invented. Just because we've had 11 years of bull market um, doesn't mean it won't happen again. It just means all the people operating in markets these days weren't around the last time the market fell out of bed, or a lot of them. Could you, could you, um, see, a, could you see a situation where we just go into this like low growth stagnation for another 10, 20 years with low interest rates? I could. Um, maybe demographics pales the U.S. out. Um, I could definitely see it. Uh, and, and if that's the case, um, why the hell would you want to own stocks here, right? Because the Japanese analog then becomes much more relevant. If you look at Japanese stocks, look, not only have they done nothing in absolute terms since 1990, right? They're basically flat. Yep. Um, but the valuations are just a fraction of where we are in the U.S., right? Yeah, the, the, the topics trades at what? around book or a slight premium to book value versus the US at what, two, two, two and a half times book, the S&P that is. Um, and just in terms of average multiple, right, the S&P is at 18, 19 times earnings and the topics is at what, low double digits, right? So, you know, all these guys in the US who say, oh, we're just going to have low interest rates forever, therefore the cost of weighted average cost of capital, cost of equity has to come down as the cost of debt structurally low. Well, no, cost of <laughs> cost of debt's been zero in Japan for 25 years and those stocks are still cheap. So, right. which one? That isn't isn't that uh, an erroneous conclusion? So, 
Because Buffett, right? I mean, he, he has said if, if, if interest rates stay low for a while, then we'll look back and think stocks were really cheap today. Look, I'm not one to uh, to tell Warren he's wrong, but um, no, please. I think that <laughs> I think I think that may, maybe maybe he has a more sophisticated way of coming to that conclusion. But to my mind, that's essentially saying the credit market is sending the right signal, right? right. I think we we have to understand why interest rates are so low. Interest rates are so low because they're being artificially suppressed by central banks. They're not so low because, and, and obviously because growth is very low and a fundamental ability Do you see the artificial suppression though stopping? Like, what if what if they do it for twenty years? Uh, well, look, I guess there's two. You asked two questions. Do I sure, see it stopping? Sure. I guess, I guess, yes, okay. because because you're going to have a social, you're going to have political, uh, fiscal policy is going to change, right? Because rates have been so low for so long and you've had this extended narrative of uh, the wealthy getting wealthier and the, 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 you know, the haves getting more to have and the have-nots just getting more mired in the mud, it's leading to political change. Political change is highly likely to be inflationary, highly likely, no matter what happens. And inflationary conditions will change interest rates, right, eventually. Um, and when that happens – well, I throw everything else out the window. We're much more likely to have stagflation than right. stagnation, I actually think. So, look, I own a little bit of gold. Yep. It's not my base case scenario, but uh, I don't think we're going to muddle along in this kind of stagnation forever with stocks levitating forever environment. Um, so, and the, I guess the other the yeah. other part of the equation – sorry, to, sorry, just to finish no, no, that go, thought. No, the other ahead. part of the equation is is corporate profits, right? So it's not just the discount rate. It's the absolute level of corporate profits are at all-time highs, essentially. Margins are at all-time highs. And the reason for that is corporations have way more power than ever before, right? So Jonathan Tepper's thesis, right, that the myth of capitalism, that you have far more concentration and oligopolism than than people think, and that leading to corporations making more money and, and the little man getting screwed, the worker getting screwed. That plays into this as well. So I think we're much more likely to see a scenario where, you know, globalization kind of has run it not run its course, but becomes more difficult, right? Trade wars, tariffs, etc. So things get more expensive. Wages have to go up to to, to placate the um, the the people who've lost out the last fifteen years. Um, then you also have this political imperative coming, which would be highly likely to be inflationary, running budget deficits, what have you. Add that all in a blender. It's very hard to see how rates stay this low forever. Right. Very hard. Right. Interesting. Interesting. So do you do you look a lot at um at longs that will play into an inflationary thesis? Not really. Okay. Not really. I, okay. I guess I I, I, I I try to pay attention to the broader market environment, but I try to find stuff that, look, if I'm right on some of the broader views, like let's say I'm right on this inflation view, which honestly sure. I'm not wedded to. I haven't I haven't tried and nailed it down to, to, to the nth degree. But if I'm right, I can make a lot of money. But even if the status quo continues, I won't get hurt too badly. Right, or I'll make a little bit of money. In other words, again, think like a creditor, downside before the upside. If I take care of the downside, the upside will take care of itself. So look, I'll tell you, I own I own this gold company called Polyus Gold. Okay. PLZL. It's listed in London. It's 10, 11 billion market cap. It's a Russian gold miner. So look, this is not uh, everyone's gold company, but it's extremely cheap, right? On gold prices today, it trades at about seven times free cash flow. They are the cheapest large cap gold company in the world by a country mile. They have the best assets in the world by a country mile. They have excellent growth prospects uh, where they could basically double the – well, they could add 50% to the annual production profile of their business 
uh, within five or six years if, if one of their growth projects comes to fruition. That's all with gold at 1450, right? Okay. Now, if gold gets a bid and gold goes to two, three thousand or wherever it could go, if inflation really explodes, guess what? This thing will be an absolute home run. But if it doesn't, I'm getting paid a 7% div, you know, trades at seven times sustainable free cash. It's got very solid growth prospects. I could make a very solid mid, mid double digit IRR on this investment, um, even if gold doesn't go to the moon, even if gold flatlines, right? That's how I think about it. So, yeah, it's great to have some upside optionality if it comes through. But if it doesn't, I want to be getting paid a kind of 10 to 15% return, whether that be through, you know, divs, buybacks, and or, you know, cash generation, free sure. cash flow generation to the balance sheet. So, what would you say right now is your most interesting long idea? Okay, so on the long side, it's that Shinoken name that I, that okay. I mentioned, this yep. Japanese. But <laughs> it's a Japanese small cap, so... <laughs> And all the disclosures, well, not all of them, but basically all the meaningful disclosures are in Japanese. So I'm happy to go through it. But what I would probably encourage is if anyone's interested, they can read up. I did a write-up on my blog, which kind of goes through the case in some detail. Um, and they can maybe take a look at that. But look, essentially the story, I'll give you the story in, in a nutshell. Cut me off if it's, <laughs> if it's too long. But they develop uh, apartments, a very special type of apartment, right? Um, and that's half the business is developing apartments, right? It's a pretty, uh, pretty typical boom bust kind of cycle. Um, development profits come, development profits go. Now, three or four years ago, that was like 80% of the business. Now it's only half the business. The reason it's only half the business is because they don't just develop and build apartments. They also manage apartments. And as they've grown, they, the, the management portion of their business has grown massively, right? So every year they're adding five, 10,000 units. They manage them. They provide rent insurance. They uh, rent guarantee that is to the tenants. They basically guarantee for a large part portion of their uh, managed buildings that occupants will pay rent, um, and they get a fee for that. Then they also provide electricity and gas to the apartments. They get a commission on that. Then they also provide outsourced um, uh, life care services. In other words, when people age out of these apartments and want to move into a nursing home. This is big business in Japan, by the way, uh, given the, the demographics. Then they'll provide you – they own a few nursing homes. They also have connections with other nursing homes. They'll provide a fee. They'll get a fee rather for placing those residents in homes. Then they also bought a few years ago, they bought a general contractor. So essentially uh, just a building company that builds not, not just their own apartments – um, but builds a wide variety of other, other people's apartments and also non-apartment work as well. So only 20% of that business comes from Shinokan internally, so 80% is external business. In other words, the stock market looked at this business a year ago when, when the real estate market, when this particular subset of the market they focus on, um, I, I won't go into it on the call, it's very complicated, but essentially you know, they focus on a very small niche. Um, when this subsection of the market came under a lot of pressure because of stuff going on unrelated to Shinokan, uh, but to other companies that were kind of behaving badly. The stock market looked at this a year ago, and they only looked at the real estate development business and thought it was a boom-bust business potentially going you know, going to the wall or getting, getting close to being distressed because of uh, external circumstances, when in reality, half the business is recurring revenue, much more, much more like a REIT-type management-type revenue stream, which is deserving of a much higher multiple. So that happened last year, carried over into this year. I initiated a position earlier this year around 750, 800, at which point I thought it was trading you know, under four times earnings with pretty modest leverage by historical standards. 
four times cash earnings. They were buying back a little bit of stock, highly incented management. Management owns 35% of the business. Um, and I was also making a bit of a call on the market recovering, right, for various reasons, which I went, to, went go into on my blog. Fast forward to today, they put up two solid quarters. The market appears to have stabilized in the development segment. The management segment is still going gangbusters. Margins are increasing with scale. And now, as I said, management revenues, or let's call it non-development revenues, are half the, half the EBIT. So it's starting to look more and more like a high-quality business, even though it is still a small cap. Right, so the stock has re-rated from four times earnings to seven times earnings, <laughs> but obviously I still think there's a lot of uh, a lot of low-hanging, not low-hanging fruit. There's a lot of uh, meat on the bone still, given you know listed REITs in Japan trade above 15 times earnings. Right, so to the extent they can gravitate towards that multiple over time, um, and I think also the the development segment will start to recover from next year. You know, it's not a stretch to see this business trading at a low teens multiple. Interesting. Which would imply, you know, almost another double from here, right? Right, right. Um, what about your second most interesting idea? And then I'll do a short idea. Oh, so okay. So you want to do the short? So you want a second most interesting long? Second most interesting long, and then and then give me a short after. Okay. So look, we already talked a lot about Aircap. Um, yep. <laughs> I'm not sure it really covers the basis as an interesting <laughs> as an interesting long. Um, Let's see. Let me pull up my book here and take. take are you are you buying are you buying more Aircap today? Um, I sold some puts after they did the placement of the Waha stakes. So they, the stock went up to 62, 62, 63. Then the Emiratis, who were essentially the big overhang on the stock for the most of the last couple of years, but they went from being fourteen percent of the company to six percent. They sold the final six percent, and of that six percent, two percent went back to the company, and four percent went into the market. So, you know, it's a decent amount of shares that went out. Stock was down 5%. So I sold some puts. I already have a very large position. Okay. Okay. So, so my second interesting long uh, is, is, I don't think it's as speculative as, well, it's probably about as speculative as Shinokan for different reasons. So, you know, caveat emptor, as they say. But I think it's a very interesting setup. It's called GAN, G A N. Okay. It's listed in London. Okay. Um, they're a B2B provider of software for internet gaming, internet gambling, rather. So, so essentially, they do the back-end software for a bunch of, uh, well, one or two European casinos and then a bunch of US-based casinos. That's not really the key story, though. The key story is they're plugged in with FanDuel. You know FanDuel, the sport, the fantasy sports. Yeah, betting. yeah. They, they advertise yeah, so, a lot. So, yeah, exactly. So FanDuel is growing like a weed, fantasy sports, but actually they've expanded very aggressively into sports betting. So sports betting is like the next gold rush for uh, uh, for um, for growth, let's say. And I should mention this is not my typical kind of you know credit based uh, idea because this is a little bit light on cash flow now, but it's just so cheap and growing so fast. With a clear catalyst, so I think it's interesting for your, for your readers to look at, or your listeners to, to look at rather. So let's just look at it real quick. So so it's about 110 million pound market cap, no debt, slightly net cash actually. So let's call it 105, 100, 105 million uh, enterprise value. It's listed in London. It's not just only listed in London. It's listed on the AIM, the Alternative Investment Exchange. So it's not. It's like the minor board, not the main board. So this isn't liquid. This is a small cap. Um, 
but all their business is essentially in the U.S. Now, it wasn't always the case, but because U.S. internet gambling is growing so rapidly and they're a provider of software to FanDuel, they're growing revenues over 100% year on year. So this year, revenues will go from 10 million pounds last year to 20, 25 million pounds this year. And I think next year, they'll be 30, 35 million pounds minimum. So you're buying this thing at maybe three and a half, four times revenue next year, maybe. If they're already EBITDA profitable. Um, they spent a lot of money in the last few years building out the infrastructure uh, and the platform. And essentially, look, they get paid a fee based on how much people gamble, right? So they provide the backend software. They have performance fees, they have licensing fees, but then they also get a kicker, a royalty fee essentially based on uptake and average revenue per daily active user, right? So there should be a lot of operating leverage in a model like that. They say six out of every 10, every dollar 60 cents of every incremental dollar of sales from this point forward drops straight down. That's not my working assumption, but even if you just haircut that a lot, it's very hard to see how this isn't, you know, a 25, 30% EBITDA margin business out a year or so. Right, so you're looking at a company growing top line above 100% in a market that is nascent. Right, sports betting is only in three or four states. Right, it's in Pennsylvania, it's in Jersey, it's in uh, Indiana, um, and obviously it's in, in it's in Nevada. But essentially, it's only in three or four new states, um, and it's you know new states are getting added at a rate of knots, right? It's, it's pretty hard to see how sports betting isn't legal across the whole country in a few years. Right. So to the extent FanDuel takes their leadership position nationwide and to the extent uh, this company, GAN, is able to remain plugged in even at lower economics, which I think probably happens to the FanDuel ecosystem, I mean, the, the opportunity is just massive, right? So you're paying three and a half, four times revenues, I think, and I think a low double-digit multiple of EBITDA, right? So I think they might do 30, 35 million of revenues next year. Uh, I think they could do close to 10, maybe, yeah, call it around 10, maybe a bit more, maybe a bit less of EBITDA. Uh, and the EV today is just over 100, it's 110 or something. So companies like that don't trade at multiples like that in the US. They just don't. The only reason this company trades at you know under four times revenues is because it's a junior listed on the London Minor Exchange. So guess what? The company is doing a relisting on the NASDAQ. And uh, they've already appointed FBR Riley to lead that um, process. And hopefully it's a first half 2020 event. And if that happens, look, it's a hundred million hundred million pound company. Doesn't take a lot of eyeballs to uh, to move the needle, right? From from being um, uh, from being a hundred million pound company to it could easily be uh, two two fifty million pound company, right? Right. So look, I started buying this stock when it was obviously much smaller. I've added to it recently on the pullback. It went from you know, went from 80 pence to 160 pence in a straight line when they said revenues were doubling year over year. Um, and then it came back to 120 or whatever, and now it's back at 140. So, look, I think on the relisting catalyst alone, you know, this should trade at least in line with the smallest, crappiest other SaaS names in the US, right? So, don't look at the Twilio's or the, don't look at the, um, the Zooms or whatever, but just look at the smaller, dodgier ones, which probably are worse businesses, but whatever, be conservative. Even then, you're looking at five, five, six times revenues, right? Um, and none of those are growing 100% year over year, right? So, look, I just think it's very difficult to see how this trades much below where it trades now once it relists. Um, and I guess the added kicker is the the CEO uh, is a guy called Dermot Smurfit. He still owns, him, him and his family still own about 30% of the company. They took the company through a sales process due to inbound inquiries about four or five months ago and then decided not to sell the company. 
in other words, they were shopping the company before the business inflected. Business really only inflected in the last, you know, two quarters, let's say. So they're shopping the company on worse numbers. And even then, I think the bids were probably around 100 pence and it's 140 and the business is absolutely inflected. Uh, and the Smurfit family is one of the richest families in Ireland. They, they are massive in paper and packaging. So this is a tiny company relative to their wealth, but the son of the founder of that Smurfit Kappa company is dedicating all his time and energy building this company uh, and is fully incented, meaning he thinks this he thinks this company could be a multi-multi-bagger. Otherwise, I don't think he'd waste his time with it. So I don't mind the setup there. You have, you have some hard catalysts in the relisting. You have a very attractive long-term story. I kind of understand why it's cheap. You know, essentially, there's no eyeballs on it. Uh, and, um, and, you know, as I said, you have a few things in the next six months that should really refocus new investors attention on the cheapness and give us a way to, to, to recatalyze the, uh, valuation to something closer to fair value. You know, all that said, it is still a micro cap. It is still a little bit outside my normal batting kind of, uh, name. And so it's sized appropriately, right? This isn't kind of an air cap type core conviction. This is a bit more of a speculative position, but Hey, you asked for interesting. I think it's interesting. Yeah, very interesting. And uh, what would you say is your most interesting short currently? Okay, so the short side is far more interesting. As you probably <laughs> guessed from my comments, I'm yes. pretty worried about the market. And obviously, I'm a credit guy. So, look, it's not hard finding good shorts now. It's it's hard, it's hard finding good shorts that actually work. <laughs> um, but, but, yeah, so the short side, there's a lot going on. So, so I think let's talk about NEO. So... Neo, Neo is first of all. Let me lay the lay the groundwork. So, Neo is a, an electric vehicle manufacturer in China. They're listed on the New York Stock Exchange. That is, the ADR is listed on the New York Stock Exchange. So, typical Chinese uh, listing structure. The ADR is listed, but you actually only own a piece of paper that's an ownership interest in the Cayman Islands holding company. You don't actually own shares in the onshore operating company. So, this company listed last year in the third quarter. At six dollars, six thirty a share, something like that, around a six six and a half billion dollar valuation. This company, I have to say, is the most egregious example of corporate capital misallocation I have ever seen. Right. So this company is essentially a VC project that's masquerading as a listed company. Um, when they went public, they'd already accumulated four billion dollars of losses. They'd only been around for three plus years. They'd essentially lost a billion in each of the first three years. Look, some of that was due to the marking of the PREF shares pre-IPO at a lower value, but essentially they still burnt $2.5 billion of cash in three years before IPO. To put that in context, Tesla, in its first three or four years of operation, it burned a couple hundred million dollars. So essentially it burnt 10 times the amount that Tesla burnt in its first three, four years, which is pretty incredible. So what did they burn it on? So... This company was founded by a guy called Bin Li, a Chinese internet entrepreneur who has another listed vehicle called uh, BitAuto. The ticker is BITA. Um, it's an internet, uh, it's an e-commerce, auto e-commerce business where they, they do auto loans, uh, auto-related e-commerce platform type business. So the guy has no experience manufacturing cars. So when he decided he wanted to build an EV brand, the first thing he did is he opened his wallet, or he opened the wallet of his backers. And essentially, he went around the world hiring engineers. So this company, despite the fact that it's never sold a car, never will sell a car outside of China, they have R&D research offices in Munich, in Oxford, in London, in Silicon Valley. 
um, they went on a hiring spree like you wouldn't wouldn't believe. Um, at the same time as you're hiring a lot of foreign experts, he tried to build a brand in China. And the way he tried to do it was by opening a number of, uh, I don't want to call them stores because that's not doing them justice. They're called Neo Houses, Houses with a capital H. They're a combination of like a store and a health club uh, and a library <laughs> and a daycare center. You know, these things are essentially places you'd go to hang out with your family um, and also learn about Neo cars, I suppose. But essentially massive cash suck, uh, fixed cost, uh, investments. So he opened about 20 of these things, 10 to 15 of the uh, more than 15 of these things around China. Uh, and he got the engineers to start developing some cars. And right now they have two models of car electric vehicle. One's called the ES eight, which is the first model, which is a seven seater SUV. Not really practical in China when you think about the one child policy, but, but anyway, <laughs> Uh, and then the second one is called the ES6, and that was released about six months ago. So, look, we, we didn't really talk about my methodology for shorting too much, but it's important to know I look for three things. One okay. is a, a sustainably bad business, right? So it can't, it can't just be levered. It has to be a business that just doesn't kind of make sense. So here's where Neo really checks the box, right? So if you think about a typical auto OEM, generally speaking, they have extremely high fixed costs. Because they got to build the factory, and you know, if you sell five thousand cars, you lose a lot of money. But if you sell, you know, hundred thousand cars, you make a lot of money because you know the factory's been built. You have the tooling. You know, you have the same number of employees, or roughly the same number of employees, whatever, right? So huge fixed cost, huge operating leverage. The problem with Neo is they never owned their own factory. They outsourced all the manufacturing to another OEM called uh, called GAC, G A. Excuse me, Jack J A C, which is kind of like a a second or third tier OEM in China. Not only did they outsource manufacturing, they committed to cover the operating losses of that outsourced factory for the first three years of production for both of their first two models, right? So, you know, if Jack spends a, builds a factory for them or builds the production line for 100,000 cars and they're only selling, say, 20,000 cars a year of a given type, you know, they have to make it up to Jack. Uh, what you know in in terms of the differential for the first three years, right? So, you know, and even if they do sell a much higher number of cars, you know, they're paying a fixed fee per vehicle for the production, right? So if you think about it, in a very competitive market, which obviously the Chinese EV market is the world's most competitive uh, EV market because you know there's over 200 EV companies in China, uh, and even in Neo's niche, which is the higher end luxury segment. There's probably 20, 25 competitors. Um, if you cut prices, for example, the average price of their, one of their vehicles is 450,000 renminbi, you know, but, you know, they give incentives, whatever, they cut price, you know, they're still paying the same fixed fee per vehicle to GAC. So, you actually, you have a lot of the negatives through the fixed cost uh, and the, uh, the loss reimbursement, but you also don't have the positives. You don't really have the operating leverage. Um which is a huge problem when you're an in, when you're kind of a startup auto that really needs to scale quickly and you're burning a lot of cash from the outset, which obviously they were doing. So, so that kind of attracted me to the business initially because I realized the model was really not set up like a normal auto OEM and just the cash needs of the business combined with this structural inefficiency meant that they would run into trouble pretty quickly. So that was, you know, they listed at the back end of, you know, third quarter last year. Then all of a sudden the warning signs kind of came thick and fast, right? So they only had one foreign 
uh, board member, a Silicon Valley, uh, a Silicon Valley uh, veteran called Pads Marie Warrior. She quit a month after the IPO, dumped all her stock. Then the company did a convertible bond deal, basically four months after the IPO, because they were burning 500 million cash a quarter. They raised 750 million cash. Basically, they timed it very well. The stock was very high. The strike on the convert was, you know, eight nine bucks or something, maybe higher. Actually, I need to I need to look it up. But they did the convert, but that was a problem because now all of a sudden they have debt at the holding company. So now we're in business, right? So on my metric, bad business, lots of debt. So all of a sudden they have $750 million of debt, which, you know, if I have a bearish view on the stock, that's going to stay debt. It's not going to turn into stock. So then the problems started coming thick and fast. So obviously the overall auto market in China slowed down. Uh, the government cut subsidies aggressively, right? So you were getting subsidies to buy electric vehicles in China. Those were essentially cut in half in June. So volumes collapsed. Then they had a battery fire issue. So they don't actually make their own batteries. A Chinese company called Cattle, C-A-T-L, a big Chinese battery company, makes their batteries. But they had a similar issue to Tesla in that the batteries started spontaneously exploding. So that kind of happened mid-year. They had to recall all the batteries. They had to recall about a quarter of their cars that they'd sold. Obviously, it was a huge reputational issue and also a huge cost issue. So volume, sales volume started to, to, to go down pretty, pretty quickly, and that was from low levels, right? So they were selling, call it two, 3,000 cars a month in you know, November, December last year, and by summer this year, they were selling 1,000 cars a month. So you know, it kind of looked like they were getting close, close to the wall. The reason I say that is you had, you had these issues that executive departures, the massive cash burn, um, the recall issue. Then you started seeing uh, kind of what I call going dark from the company. So going dark is kind of a catch-all term for when a company just stops reporting financial requirements. So the company started exhibiting this interesting pattern where they would report positive news. So let's say a given month's deliveries were better than expected. They'd report it, but then they wouldn't report earnings. <laughs> so the second quarter earnings- That's interesting. Um, yeah. Second quarter earnings for the June quarter, normally, so, so you know, going back the, uh, the, sec the third or fourth quarter last year, those earnings were reported, you know, relatively promptly, call it 40, 45 days after the quarter. They didn't report second quarter earnings until September the 24th, right? So almost the end of the third quarter is when they reported second quarter earnings. Um, and it's pretty clear why they, they didn't want to report the horrible numbers in the context of a financing raise, right? So going back to May, they had been uh, putting out press releases saying that they were trying to raise capital from a, a Beijing local government affiliate called E-Town Beijing, which is essentially like a, you know, a, a quasi-governmental entity that is designed to support investment in the Beijing area. So they put out a press release saying they're negotiating to get 10 billion yuan, which is, you know, $1.3 billion um, from this entity. But then, you know, form five months later, they provide no update. All right. So by this stage, fast forward to, you know, September of this year, I kind of think they're, they're out of cash. So they have the 750 million of debt that they raised from converts. They've burned through all that. They also have, you know, a few hundred million of Chinese bank debt. Um, they're running negative working capital because they're essentially not paying their suppliers. Um, and they're also giving, they're also uh, building a bit of inventory uh, on their balance sheet, but they're essentially still funding themselves through their suppliers, and they're burning $500 million of cash a quarter. So fast forward to September, and they make an announcement on September the 5th, don't worry, we're raising $200 million of a new convert, 
100 million from the founder, Mr. Lee, and 100 million from Tencent. So Tencent was a strategic backer pre-IPO. Uh, they also bought part of the first convert, the one that um, the one that they issued in uh, Feb March, uh, which by the way is now trading at you know 40 cents on the dollar, right? So it's gone from par to 40 cents on the dollar in six months. So not exactly a great sign. So they announced that they're going to raise 200 million dollars, which you know look they're burning four five hundred a quarter, so that's not a lot, but that might buy them a month, a month and a half, let's say. So emergency liquidity to get them to some kind of other financing solution. They announced that on September the 5th. They don't say anything on the call on September 24th on the earnings release. They specifically refuse to comment on the financing situation. They just say cryptically that they're ongoing discussions and it has not been easy to find a solution that benefits everyone. That's a direct quote from the ex-CFO. Then we don't hear anything else for another month. Then the CFO, the guy who made those comments on the call, quit. Then the number two finance guy, also the only other finance guy to speak on the call, quit. And fast forward to early December, and you know, almost on a daily or otherwise daily basis, there are reports in the Chinese press that the company is either out of liquidity or potentially exploring restructuring solutions or in a cash crisis or that lawyers have been called in to discuss potential bankruptcies. You know, the, the Chinese press is essentially reporting on this with with regularity, but nothing is appearing in the Western press. The only thing that's appearing in the Western press is fluffy, bullish Twitter posts from Neo's Twitter feed saying the future is bright. Um, we just signed a deal with Mobileye or, you know, deliveries were great in October. Um, nothing about the price of those deliveries or the incentives that they're running to, to generate those deliveries, or even if they're paying suppliers, just deliveries were good. So, we're in this weird nether zone with this company where it's very strange. There's two audiences, right? There's the Western audience that trades the stock, which is largely retail and frankly uninformed and not sophisticated in my view, you know, where the market cap is still two, two and a half billion. Yet the bonds trade at 30 cents on the dollar, right? So if you just run through the implied enterprise value of the company looking at the bonds, the whole thing's worth four, five hundred million dollars. But if you run through the implied enterprise value looking at the stock, the whole thing's worth four and a half billion dollars, literally 10 times the value of that implied by the bonds. So look, I wrote this anomaly up on my blog. Um, it's pretty straightforward for credit guys like myself. Like normally when bonds trade at 30 cents on the dollar, the equity portion of the enterprise value should be de minimus, right? So let, I'll give you another example of a situation. Has, a, has a company ever yeah. contacted you when you did a blog post about something like this? No, no, I've tried to contact the company. I've contacted the company directly a number of times to ask for comment, and essentially they've gone dark. If you ask them a question about the status of their financing, they simply say, no comment, please refer to our public filings, uh, and we'll update the market when necessary. Got it. But that's the point. The public filings are late and or missing, right? They haven't given an update to the market on either financing transaction, either the Beijing E-Town transaction or the convert transaction. In fact, if you call Tencent and ask them, did you close your convert uh, in investment in NEO? They say no comment, which is strange because you'd think NEO, uh, excuse me, you'd think Tencent would be supporting the company uh, given that they bought the last bond deal and theoretically remain shareholders. But Look, I think they've closed no financing. I think if they had closed financing, they'd trumpet it to the world, right? Given that they appear to be running on fumes. So the real anomaly is in the stock because the credit market gets it. And again, that speaks to the heart of my approach, right? That 
you have these anomalies in smallish stocks and or corners of the market where let's be honest the the other side of the trade is, is is probably not that sophisticated it's not used to looking at like credit versus equity arbitrage or you know is not doing the deep dive credit work that that maybe the bond the hedge fund guys who own the bonds have done right otherwise the bonds wouldn't trade at 30 cents so look you can set up a great trade i think where you buy the bonds at 30 cents and you short some delta on some delta you short the stock because look if the company survives those bonds have to be worth par right they have to go to par in fact if the company is recapitalized and more than half of the assets transfer ownership then those bonds have to go to par immediately in other words, there's a change of control put on the bonds, right? So if you really thought the company was going to survive, those bonds would go from $0.30 cents to 100 overnight, assuming they got recapitalized, right? Because given where the stock price is, it would have to be more than half the company sold at a, you know, at a good valuation to, to, to save the company. So obviously, the market is telling you that's not going to happen. Otherwise, the bonds wouldn't be at $0.30, cents, right? But then why is the stock market telling you the company is still worth you know, $4.5 billion enterprise value? That's the real anomaly. So, look, it's uh, it's one for the books, uh, and the reason I say that is because it kind of hits on a lot of these angles. It hits on the credit versus equity angle. It hits on the kind of Chinese company abusing U.S. capital markets angle um, by going dark, not providing necessary disclosures. In fact, it hits the general nail on the head with regard to foreign private issuers. So I'm not sure if you know, but there's a whole category of companies that. If they, even though they list on the New York Stock Exchange their ADR, they're not subject to the same disclosure requirements as a local listing, as a normal U.S. company, right? So, Microsoft or whatever, or you know Johnson and Johnson, they list on the New York Stock Exchange. They have to file quarterly reports, quarterly cash flow statements within a certain period of time. You know, they have to file 8K notifications anytime something material happens, whatever. For foreign private issuers, not only do they only have to file twice a year. They don't have to file 8Ks. They have to file 6Ks. But they only have to file those current reports if something deemed material in their local jurisdiction happens, right? So let's say they're a Chinese company and let's say they get some very dilutive, ter- terribly toxic financing from a Chinese bank. But let's say in China that getting financing from a Chinese bank is not required to be disclosed to, to stockholders. By the letter of the law, they we don't probably have to disclose that in the U.S., which is kind of crazy, right? Because they're listed on the New York Stock Exchange. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it hits all these various angles. Obviously, it ties in with the whole hype around EV. And I, I wrote a first blog post on it back in March saying NEO is going to end in tears. You know, that was when the stock was, you know, five, five fifty or whatever, and now it's two buck, two, two, two thirty or something. But even at two dollars thirty, you know, it's a two and a half billion market cap. Right when, as I said, you know, <laughs> the bonds telling you the equity is nine times underwater. So, look, I still think it ends in tears. They kind of lasted a few months longer than I thought, but I think it's a uh, it's a very high conviction short into the first half of 2020. Very interesting, um, man. You 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 have a very interesting approach. Um, this this is this has been a great conversation. I was thanks, man. Yeah. Well, was there anything else? Um, you know, we could wrap it up. Yeah, here. I mean, yeah, I think we've we've gone on like it's longer than than we probably thought we would. That's I, I would right. have talked about a, a couple of European names, um, which is where I see a lot of the similarities with Japan, as I mentioned, especially on the short side. You no, know, well, you know, but why don't we, we save we that can, for we a follow up? Yeah, I was gonna say we something. could we could just do an episode on that at some point. 
exactly. So let's let's leave it here for now. And it's been a real pleasure chatting. And um, if if you don't mind, I can maybe give the listeners some details where they can find me and follow me. And no, stuff like please, that. please. How can people contact you? Cool. So I guess the easiest way is to follow me on Twitter. My handle is p u p p y e h one puppy year one. Um, or, and, or you can also subscribe to my blog, which is rapercapital.com, just R-A-P-E-R capital.com. Um, and look, I, I don't write up everything, but I try to write maybe once a month. Um, you know, try to write differentiated stuff. Obviously my approach is a little bit different. Uh, and, uh, those are the two avenues you can keep up on everything that's uh, going on in my world. All right. And then we'll get that all on the show notes at, uh, Eric Schlein. That'd be great. Yeah. Perfect. Awesome. All right, Jeremy. Thanks, Eric. Yeah, thanks thanks a lot, Jeremy. Um, And I look forward to having you on again. Sounds good. Speak to you soon. All right, pleasure. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Intelligent Investing Podcast with Eric Schlein. If you'd like to connect with Eric for questions, comments, feedback, ideas, or to inquire about being on the show, please contact Eric at intelligentinvesting at gmail.com. So, in the words of Charlie Munger, I have nothing to add.